and welcome. I want to issue a word of welcome to all of you who are joining on all three floors or perhaps even remotely online digitally. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus and we are delighted that you are in some capacity joined together with us. I first want to say thanks to Matt McGill a couple of weeks ago and to Scott Gill this past Sunday for standing and delivering God's word in my absence. I hated to be away, but was thankful that uh, some guys who love the Lord and his word as much or more than I do stood and delivered uh, the truth of God's word ably and with great zeal and conviction. And that was a tremendous treat and a joy for me. So thank you guys. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where when I'm out, which is unfortunately this season's been uh, rather frequent, we don't miss a beat. So I'm delighted though to be back on this November 29th. Interestingly, it is the first day technically of the Advent season. Today marks the first day of Advent on the church calendar where all around the world, the church, capital C Church, gathers to begin the formal season on the church calendar of commemorating the creator of the cosmos stepping into the human mess. And it's a neat thing that we get to recognize and realize that we are a part of what the church all around the world is celebrating and commemorating. It's also the day that we conclude our series through the little book of 1 John. And I think it's actually a perfect fit to wrap up our study through the book of 1 John as we get into the Advent season. Advent is such a marvelous season for so very many reasons. There's so much tradition. There's so much warmth and feelings and memories. There's family and joy and really just general happiness. But of course, a lot of what we do during the Christmas season really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the fact that God, the sovereign of the universe, stepped into finite form, and flesh. A lot of what we do at Christmas is really just around how it makes us feel. And feelings are okay things. Feelings are good things. Feelings are necessary things. We might say that feelings are good servants, but they are terrible masters. They should never be in charge of anything. You'll hear a whole lot of contemporary and pop culture will say, just follow your heart, just follow your heart. It is a terrible piece of advice. Don't ever do that. Scriptures say your heart is deceived above all things and nobody can understand it. Feelings are good things, but they're not the greatest things. Instead, what Scripture and what our Lord wants for us is to know things with certainty, to have absolute assurance. That's been the overwhelming theme of the entire epistle of 1 John is that we would all have abiding assurance, that we would live in the knowing, not the hoping or wanting or wishing, but we would actually live in the knowing. Now, let me make this as practical as I possibly can. This is why we do weddings the way we do weddings. Perhaps some of you who are married or one day will be married or have been married or you've been to a wedding, you know what we do in wedding ceremonies. We have these two people who are shaking like a leaf, face each other, and we get them to repeat after us. It's an amazing amount of power. I could pretty much say anything. I could recite the lyric to The Little Mermaid and they would repeat after me. But generally, that's not what we do. What we try to do is we get them to make eye contact and in the public 
presence of all of these people that they care about and who are for them, we get them to make promises. The old time, we used to call them vows. I still refer to this as a covenant that is cut between two people. What we're trying to get them to understand is, I promise, no matter what, even if you should fail, even if you should fall, I will be faithful. Why do we do those kinds of vows and marriage ceremonies? Because we're trying to create an arena of assurance. Because then and only then do we have actual comfort to live lives of confidence. This is what God wants for us. Just imagine if you had a spouse or one day will have a spouse or if you've had a spouse in the past, just imagine if that spouse was actually incapable of ever doing you wrong. You may be thinking right now, whoa, you don't know my spouse. That's okay. Your spouse is thinking that about you too right now. What if you were married to someone who was absolutely incapable of ever being unfaithful, of ever being untrue, of ever letting you down? You just knew that you knew that you knew that no matter what, he or she was always going to be for you. Imagine the confidence that construct, that context would provide. That is precisely what God has for us. In fact, that leads us to our big idea for this morning as we wrap up our series in the study of 1 John. Our big idea goes like this. God wants us to abide in assurance because he knows that if and when we as his people do that in the here and now, it'll change our lives and then our changed lives will change those of those around us. So we're going to be in the book of 1 John chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. I'll invite you to turn there. Our big idea, God wants us to abide in assurance. If you're new to Bethel at any of our campuses, specifically downtown, just so you know, this is how and what we do. We walk through an entire book of Scripture, generally speaking, and we just ask the Lord to speak through that text for such a time as this. So we're in 1 John chapter 5. Lord willing, we're going to land this plane today. Beginning in chapter, 13, or chapter 5, verse 13, John writes to these believers, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And then perhaps one of the most contentious verses of the entire Bible, certainly of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, and here we go. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, more on that later. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true." In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. 
So we're going to unpack this just a little bit, very briefly, and then we're going to try to uh, see how we can land this first John plane and see how we can apply it to our lives as we move into this Advent season. And then as we try to put a bow on that wonderful, sparkly year that has been 2020 thus far. Now, back to 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. John, at long last, finally at the end of his epistle, he writes this in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the thesis. This is the thrust. This is the theme of his writing. This is why John has written this epistle. This is a very Johannine style of writing. This is what John does. He writes a whole bunch, and then at the very end, he tells you why he's just written all of this stuff. It's just like he does in his gospel account. In his gospel account, in chapter 20, in verse 31, he gives us the purpose statement of having written his gospel, and it goes like this. But these are written so that you may believe what, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John writes his gospel account to those who are far from God, who are outside the community of faith, who are not believers so that they will believe. It's an articulation or a defense of the gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's why he writes his gospel. But that's not why he writes this epistle. He tells us very clearly, I'm writing to this to you who are already believers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, so that you will know. That's why I've titled this message this morning, Knowing. John uses the word know to recognize, to realize, to internalize, to appreciate, and to appropriate. He uses that word 15 times in his epistle. Seven of those times he uses here in this last section, verses 13 to 21, seven times over or almost half of those usages occur in this final passage. What John wants is for us to have abiding assurance. God wants us to abide in assurance. He wants us to know, not just feel so that we're determined by how the day happens to be going. No, no, no. He wants us to know that we know that we know, to realize, to recognize all of those things. I write these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this is a little bit technical, but please understand, technically and truly, only God has eternal life. Eternal, by definition, means timeless, not experiencing the succession of moments where there has never been a time that he was not. God has existed eternally in three persons and there is one God. Only God is eternal. But the word could probably more properly be translated so that you may know that you have everlasting life. There was a time when you were not. There was a time that you and I did not exist. We had not yet been conceived, but we have come into existence and we have come into a re-existence, you might say, a redemption, a redemptive recreation, and now we have already life everlasting. John wants us to know that, to have confidence, to have certainty, to have assurance that we have life everlasting. And then he's going to explain what that looks like, what that means, why that is so valuable, why that is so important. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We are living in a future age in the present. 
We have everlasting life now, even though we are in a context and an age that is finite, that is fallen, that is fragile. But we have everlasting life in an age that is finite. Now, we have to understand that we live in this overlap of ages. We are the already living amongst the not yet. You and I have to know this about ourselves. We are living in an overlap of ages. The kingdom is breaking forth from the future into our present, and we have that life everlasting now, but we live still in the trailing off of the former age that is still prone to sin and error and fallenness and corruption and evil and wickedness, all of those things. So we're living in this strange overlapped age. But because we are to know that we have everlasting life, we are to have confidence. What does that confidence produce for us? It provides the ability to pray and to pray with boldness. This is verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we pray and our hearts and our minds and our wills are in congruence and conformity with his heart, the answer is absolutely yes. So should we pray about giving the gospel and dispensing the kingdom ethic? Yes, of course we should, knowing that the answer is yes. And then we pray, how do we go about that? How do I engage in this specific conversation with my neighbor, my coworker, my family member, my enemy? But we pray, does God want people to come to faith? Yes, we know that. And so we have confidence that we approach his throne of grace with boldness. When our hearts are lined up with him, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, we hear that and we've been to church before, probably all of us, or at least most of us, and we think, yeah, of course God hears me. Why shouldn't he? I mean, I'm kind of awesome. I mean, when I speak, people should listen because, I mean, it's me after all. We forget the smallness of our individual lives and the ginormousness, that's a word, of our God. The fact that he hears us is a scandal of grace that most of us do not think about. But that's what Christmas is about. That God, not only does he hear us and heed us, He comes to us, like us, experiencing all of the fragility that constitutes who and what we are. We have confidence that he hears us. Verse 15, and if we know, here's this word again. Remember, seven times in this passage alone, John wants us to know. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We know. God, I I want to ask you for your forgiveness. Did you know that Christians can and should do that? Because we have it. The answer is already and always yes. God, will you forgive me? Boldly knowing that the answer is yes. What I'm saying is, God, would you pay my debt undeservingly? I've racked up this tally sheet of error and offense and foolishness and rebellion. Would you pay this bill? I don't deserve it. But that's the kind of God that you are. And the answer is always yes. We have confidence. We know that we're forgiven. We don't have to earn it because we never could. We never would. We have confidence that he is that kind of a God. Now, I want to remind you, this entire epistle and this passage is about assurance. I cannot overemphasize this enough, but I shall now try. Because if we don't make a big deal that this is about assurance, then verses 16 and 17 go off the rails in a hurry. 
this very confusing, very challenging passage, verses 16 and 17, we have to understand that it comes in the context of assurance. We're talking about prayer in verses 14 and 15. Talking about prayer, having boldness and confidence in prayer. For example, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, now that is, sees his brother or sister committing a sin, not suspects, not assumes, personally experiences, sees a brother or sister in Christ committing a sin. Sees it. Doesn't just assume it. Sees it. Knows for a fact. All too often, the church in the 20th and 21st century has become sort of the epicenter of the cancel culture. Oh, you've done that? Mm, that's a scarlet letter. There's, mm, sorry, God might forgive you, but you're damaged goods in this context. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen to what John says. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. What's going on here? All Christians sin. Should they? No. Do they? Yes. Will they? Uh-huh. And praise be to God, that does not mean that when Christians sin, God immediately plucks us off the planet because it would be a very lonely world indeed in which Scott Gill would be all alone in this world. But no, Christians do sin. It's just what John is saying is that no, when Christians sin, God does not pluck us off the planet. We've already talked about this multiple times through our study in 1 John. For the Christian, sin is not an impossibility, but it is an, inco uh, an incompatibility. Let's put it that way. It's not impossible, but it is incompatible. It's no longer who we are. The lures of the flesh and the fallen world still tempt us, but ever increasingly, because we are those with everlasting lives who live according to that age, not this age, we ever increasingly realize and recognize that the payoff of temptation is never as sweet as the lure itself, ever. And we increasingly know that. And we increasingly want the stuff and the fruit of the age that is to come, that is righteousness. We ever increasingly... Not that we're not tempted anymore. Not that we're getting better. It's just that we know increasingly that this stuff that tempts me never pays off. It never has. It never will. Sin in all of human history, thousands of years, billions of people, not one time has sin ever been sweeter than the actual temptation. Not once. And for those of us who are Christians, there is sin. It doesn't lead to death. And remember in Scripture, death is not the cessation of existence or the stoppage of life. Death means separation. When Christians sin, it, it causes problems, but it doesn't cause us to be separate, our bodies from our souls or our person from our God. No, that's not what happens. Apparently, John is speaking specifically to something that was being taught in these churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area. The Gnostics were saying, ooh, ooh, we have secrets. Wouldn't you like to know? Because you could do that thing and God might kill you. Yeah. That's information that I would kind of like to have. Or if you don't do that thing that you're supposed to do, God might kill you. Bet you wish you knew, don't you? Well, I have the secrets. You have to come to me. And this false teaching was used to manipulate and coerce and persuade people and to elevate the alleged keepers of these secrets. And John says, that is a lie. No. These Gnostic false teachers were trying to peddle their own version of assurance. Listen, 
You don't want God to kill you, do you? Who's going to say no? Well, then you have to come to me, and I will tell you the secrets that will give you assurance. John says, no, God has already communicated and conveyed all that he possibly can so that we have assurance, so that we know, because God wants us to abide in assurance, to dwell in that certainty. So he continues on in verse 16. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. John pivots, and now he's talking about unbelievers. Because yes, all sin ultimately leads to death. All sin ultimately leads to death. But for the believer, that sin already led to the death of Christ on the cross. John's already talked about throughout his gospel and throughout this epistle. There is sin that leads to death. For the unbeliever, the separation of body and soul, ultimately, not instantly. God is not uh, slow as something, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish. I do not say that one should pray for that. Remember, we're in the context of prayer and assurance. John's not saying, I forbid it. He's saying, that's not what I'm talking about. That's all he's saying is, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, yes, pray for your brother or sister who is caught, and you will give them life. Because we're not to be a cancel culture. We are to always be a culture of cultivation, of restoration, of reform, of blessing and building and edifying and equipping. He says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Again, refuting the claims of the Gnostic that there is sin that will kill you. John's not saying, hey, if you screw up in this secret way, God's going to kill you and or send you to hell. He's not saying that. Let me say that again. John is not saying that God's going to kill you and send you to hell, as has been taught and preached by the evangelical church in error for centuries. That is absolutely and cannot be what John is talking about. Moving on, verse 18. We know, there's that word again, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here again, he's not saying that it's impossible for you to sin. You will still have issues of faithlessness, but it is incompatible. Ever increasingly, you want what the Spirit wants. You want what the age that is to come is all about. Decreasingly are you attracted to the lures of the flesh and the fallen world. He who is born of God, but he who is born of God protects him. This is an interesting little play on words John does here. The one who is ultimately begotten of God, Jesus. We are all born of God if we are believers, but the one par excellence who is begotten of God, his son Jesus. He uh, pr uh, protects the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. Certainly what John's getting at here is that the evil one does not in any way impact or reduce any of our everlastingness. To be born of God means we are everlasting, and the evil one has no impact or influence on that whatsoever. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Now, in this context, really, John's talking about the apostles. We know that we're from God. They are not. But it still translates and it applies to us, the believers in the apostolic teaching. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one is architecting an entire system that is peddling a lie of false assurance. If you'll just do this, if we'll all just hold hands and plant trees and eat avocado toast, then we'll have assurance and we'll have a life everlasting of peace and prosperity. To which John says, eat all the avocado toast you want, but your assurance comes from the finished work of Christ and not anything that you do, not a single thing. 
We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why they don't understand. That's why it feels strange to us because we live from that age backward. And so this world is not actually our home. We're uncomfortable here in a lot of ways. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has come in the flesh, not some spooky specter, not some freaky phantasm. He became a human. The logos became human. And he has given us understanding. Such a great word. He has given us his mind to know. There's some things I don't understand. That's okay. You've been given, as Paul will say in Philippians, the mind of Christ. He has given us understanding, the capacity, the faculties to understand. He has given us his understanding. Why? So that we may know. We may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is everlasting life. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's not a secret. It's not a code. It's not a ritual. It's not a practice. It's a person. It's Jesus. It's not following the law. It's not being better than most and not quite as bad as some. It's about Jesus. He is God. He is the true Son of God. He is himself life everlasting. Do you remember the, the story when John 11, in John's gospel, Jesus goes to see that Lazarus has died and Martha comes out. She says, oh, I know that one day you will raise my brother. And he says, Martha, 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 you don't get it. I am the resurrection. It's me. It's a person. It's no secret. It's no code. It's me. John says the same thing, I think, commenting on his gospel here in his epistle, that Jesus himself is everlasting life. And then verse 21, what a strange little way to end your epistle. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a strange way to wrap up your epistle. Or is it? It's what he's actually been saying the entire time. Yes, in Ephesus and in that part of the Roman Empire in that day, there was a pagan practice of having little statues. We know that in the book of Acts, a silversmith named Demetrius had the practice and the business of making silver statues and idols that people would come and they would use as idols, little gods that they would set up transactionally. I need this, I'm going to leave an offering of whatever, and these little gods have to do what I want. We obligate ourselves to one another. John says, oh, no, 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 no. That is not knowing at all. That is simply squinting your eyes and wishing that things would be. John says, no, I want you to abide in assurance. God wants us to abide in assurance. Born ones, keep yourselves from idols. Why does John say that? I think it's a perfect illustration as we're here at Advent. For some of us, Christmas, Christmas time, the, the holiday can be nothing more than an idol where we're just expecting some feelings from God to, to make us feel good because we're very busy and important. God, you do the hard things for me. I'll do the important things. John says, no, Christian, if you have that mindset, you are treating your faith and you are treating your God like an idol. Be free from that trap. We have the tendency to say, okay, God, I, I, I'm gonna get through this age as best I can, pursuing significance and influence and worth and value and weight and, and matter, and, and you just sort of be on my shoulder like a genie and help me out every now and then. 
John says, oh, no, no, that's treating God like an idol. You are an everlasting born of God one, living from that age in this. Be free of that idol because those idols will destroy you. They are transactional. Okay, God, I'll do this if you do this. Our God does not operate that way. Our God says, you are sorry and in sin, and I love you so much that I will send my sendable self, my son, to die as your substitute. Be free of those things. Live, little ones, as though you are everlasting and of that age, not of this way, of this age. God wants us to abide in assurance. So how are we going to land this first John plane? Here's what I'd like to do. I'm always a little bit nostalgic as I finish up a series or an entire book of Scripture. I kind of want to just give our greatest hits or, or my greatest hits, some of the implications, principles, and applications from this entire study through the book of 1 John. I'm going to hit these very, very fast because I, I don't suspect that any of us were here or listening online to every single sermon from the book of 1 John. So these are just the ones that I did. I'm not stealing from Mike on October 25th or from Matt or from Scott the last two weeks. These are just my greatest hits, observations, what I have learned, what I have taken away from my personal study through the book of 1 John. And I'm so grateful that I've gotten to spend the amount of time I did in this very, very challenging little epistle. The first one goes like this. We started this back on September 13th. Seems like a very long time ago. A lot has happened since September 13th. We opened up the epistle to 1 John and we said that Jesus is, period. Jesus is, and we sort of unpack that he is God. Jesus himself is grace. Jesus himself is the gospel. He is the good news. It's a person. And we talked about that the life of Jesus is the only life that works, our world spins all sorts of narrative, all sorts of allure and promise that you can have a life that works by pursuing that lifestyle or that product or service or good. No. The overwhelming message of Scripture in both Testaments, as the Old Testament looks forward to the Messiah, as the New Testament looks back to the Messiah, is that the life of Jesus is the only life that works. And born ones, you are in Christ. That's what that means. Number three, knowing God loves others. What does knowing God actually look like? It looks like loving others. You can't hug God's neck. We hug one another's neck from a distance, of course, and with masks on and with hermetically sealed bubble wrap on the whole bit. But still, knowing God loves others. We've said that others aren't in the way. They are the way. The next one was that sin fractures fellowship. It causes dissonance and distance and deviation between me and God, between me and you, between me and my own soul and spirit. It fractures fellowship. Sin is when we pretend to be unaware and that God doesn't care. But we are not unaware and God does care. Sin is my decision that something is good apart from God. I just want you to think about that as you reflect on your past week. Do it now. Sin is your fleshly decision that something is good apart from God and then pursuing it. Man, I've been there. I suspect we all have. And that sin fractures fellowship. And even believers, even born ones, are still prone to that. But ever increasingly, we recognize that that payoff is never sweet. 
Next, we have been anointed. If you were here, if you remember that message from 1 John, we have been anointed. And the word that John uses is we have been Christed. We have been Messiahed. That's how God sees us. In the person of the Son of God himself. That's who we are. That's what it means to be in him. That's our identity. We talked about in 1 John chapter 3 that we become what we behold. There is a day coming when we shall see him as he is. And just that seeing him will utterly transform us who are living now according to our everlastingness. But when we see him, we will be fully changed and we will be like him. Next, we talked about cheer up. It's actually worse than you think. (laughs) We talk about this all the time at the downtown campus that we should have a low anthropology. But praise God, we have a high theology and a high Christology. I'm actually way worse off than I think, but God loves me more than I can ever imagine. The following week we talked about truth wins. John makes a really big deal that Jesus is the truth, not all these other secret paths, all these secret solutions and formulas. No, Jesus is the truth, and truth wins. Which leads us to two final implications from today's passage. I've said this one before because it's such a a repeated refrain all throughout Scripture. It goes like this. God always says yes unless he has a better idea. So many of us Christians think that we have to pray to sort of wear down God's reluctance. To just try to get his attention because he must be distracted or busy or disinterested or disengaged or disappointed. No. Whatever we pray for, God will always say yes unless he has something even better in mind because that's the kind of good God that he is. We are to have confidence as we pray and God will say yes unless he has something better because he actually knows our good better than we know our good. And then finally, what John says, I think, in some of this entire passage about knowing goes like this. We know because we have known. We know now because there was a point when we have known. All of these uses of the word know in this passage, all seven of them are in the present, I'm sorry, they're in the perfect tense. It's a little bit geeky, a little bit greeky. Scott mentioned it last week. It's really important grammar. The perfect tense in Scripture means that there is something that occurred at a point in time and it has continuing effect as though it is still happening. Something happened in time with continued effect. We know because we have known. You and I might experience doubts. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is picking up my doubt and walking ahead anyway. That's knowing. If there has ever been a time that you knew, the penny dropped and you said, I believe it. Jesus is who he says he was. He did what he said he would do. He is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he is my substitute. I cannot earn right standing before God in anything that I do or attempt or accomplish or acquire or achieve, anything, but he has done it all and all to him I owe. If there has ever been a time that you knew that, then you know that. You and I will go through seasons where we go, gosh, was that whole thing just an illusion? Was I just in my own head? Was I making things up? No, no. 
Jesus to Peter in Matthew 16, Paul will say it himself in Galatians, if you have ever known that, that did not come to you by flesh and blood. Meaning, you're the smart one that figured it out of your own intellect. No, if you've ever known that, that was revealed to you by the Spirit of God, we know because we have known. You know. God wants us to abide in assurance. He cannot does not, will not ever fail. We are the everlasting ones, born ones. And we get to celebrate that and commemorate that this Advent season. He has come to make us everlasting. Let me invite you to pray with me before we continue to worship. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We do thank you for this Advent season where we get to commemorate and celebrate the coming of Christ, Emmanuel, the with us God. Father, if there's anyone here this morning online or on any of our three floors who does not know, does not recognize and realize, you, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus? They might step out of death and into life, out of darkness into light. Would you do for them what you have done for us, that they would know, that they would have assurance of their life everlasting? Would you give them courage and conviction to speak with someone they know and love and trust about that, that they could be led ever increasingly into a growing relationship with your son, Jesus? For the rest of us, Father, as we come through the tail end of this calendar 2020 and all the fears, uncertainties, and doubts that we have, would you encourage us anew? We thank you for the, the gleam and the glisten on the gemstone of salvation that is assurance. May we all abide in it ever increasingly, Father. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.